0: Welcome to What Should I Do With My Life? Figuring it out from those who seem to have it all figured out. I'm your host, Stephanie Horowitz. When's the last time you stopped and asked yourself, what am I doing with my life? Why am I doing this? Do I even like this? Join me as we hear the inspiring stories of real people to find out what they did and are doing with their lives. Are they satisfied? Would they have done anything differently? Maybe through these stories, we will figure out how to bring more meaning and passion in our day-to-day. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to share today's episode. I had a great talk with Danny DeVries, who I've known since I was two years old. We're basically family. Danny has spent the past eight years working as a foreign service officer in a variety of positions in a variety of places. He's been posted in Yemen, Spain, and Jordan, and will soon be moving to Jerusalem. Danny shares about the impact he has made and continues to make through his work as a diplomat. Talks about the tough reality of working in a job that can be sometimes high risk, high reward, and discusses some of the perks and challenges of moving to a new country and a new job every couple of years. I feel like we really only scratched the surface. There are so many more questions I have and so much more I want to learn. So we'll probably be hearing again from Danny at some point. It's important to say that this interview does not necessarily reflect the views of the US government. And with that, here is Danny. Hi, Danny.
1: Hi, Stephanie, how are you?
0: I'm good, what's going on over there in Amman today?
1: Uh, It's just another beautiful day in Amman. Sun is shining, the weather's nice.
0: How long have you been living there?
1: I've been here for just under three years, and uh, unfortunately my time here is coming to an end. I, I leave in three weeks for my next assignment.
0: All right, so that is a perfect segue just to dive into this conversation. So first of all, I'm really happy to have you here today and hear your story and let you share your story so let's just do it. In one sentence, can you just tell me what it is that you do?
1: Yeah, I'm a foreign service officer, which means that I am a diplomat working for the U.S. State Department, and in a sentence, I represent the interests of the American people in foreign policy.
0: So how did you get into this? Like, How did you know this is something you you wanted to do, that you would be good at? Where did this begin?
1: Yeah, so I think first you have to understand a little bit about the way that somebody becomes a Foreign Service Officer. And it's through a series of tests. First, they changed the order a little bit, but when I took it, first you had to do a computer, like an online computer test, and then you wrote a mm-hmm. series of essays. And if you passed the computer test, then they would evaluate your essays. And if you passed the essays, then you go mm-hmm. to Washington for what they call an oral assessment, which is something like a job interview, but a little bit more like a structured game where they assign you uh, scores. Anyway, uh, the day that I applied to take the Foreign Service Officer test, it was 2010. I was living in Detroit with really high unemployment from the financial crisis. I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I say the day that I applied to join the Foreign Service, I probably applied for 10 other jobs that day. I think I, mm. I during this six-month period of unemployment, I probably applied for about 200 jobs. And the mm. State Department job was one of the two that came through. And so it really wasn't necessarily that I was pursuing my life's passion, but it was just uh, a job opportunity that came up for me. And in a lot of ways, I feel very fortunate because I could have gone in a different direction if it had been a different one of the 200 jobs that I had applied for. My life would have been completely different, and, and God only knows how. But but that, yeah, that's how it worked out for me. I have been interested in international relations for really um, almost my whole life. I, I always found it more interesting than anything else, not necessarily that I uh, intended to pursue it as a career, but I also was uh, very interested from a young age in public service. You know, my, my dad always talks about giving back to your community. And I, I felt that was something that was important to me and something that I wanted to pursue. So while I was applying for the State Department job, I was applying for a lot of other uh, government jobs, civil service jobs that are very different from what I do now in the State Department. But I didn't really know what I was looking for. And I also didn't know how to sort of play the game. There's a very specific way that you can apply for jobs in the federal government. And it's unfortunately, it's not at all clear to someone from the outside, at least in my experience, it was not at all clear what types of jobs to apply for, how you need to apply. I Now that I've spent some time living in Washington and a lot of people who work in the federal government, I have a better sense of what it takes to apply for these civil service jobs. And I, I really didn't come anywhere close to meeting the requirements, because they're looking for certain terms or certain uh, skills that, You have to be able to list on the application, Uh, but anyway, the foreign service is very different because they look to recruit people from all sorts of different backgrounds with different skill sets and different uh, Types of experience and different education levels and backgrounds. And it's really less about your work experience and more about whether or not you can demonstrate that you have the skills they're looking for on on these three stages of the test. And that's what sort of gave me an advantage was that I wasn't held back by my lack of, maybe I didn't have veterans preference points that help in getting uh, civil service jobs. I didn't have a master's degree, but but those things don't really apply in the same way when you try to join the foreign service. So I think it was uh, a unique type of testing and a unique way of bringing in new people. And that really played to my advantage.
0: So crazy. Everything you just said, your whole situation, and I'm excited to unpack it and hear so many of the experiences you've had. It's so crazy that you were just applying for, you said there was a period you applied to what, 200 jobs, you applied to a bunch that same day, and then look at where it took you. I mean, you've had this crazy journey so far. And also something that stuck out to me that you said, and I was wondering myself is, did you have any mentors or people to talk to? Or did you just figure it out on your own? You said it was really complicated. And I was thinking, hmm, did Danny know someone who guided him or told him what to expect?
1: It's a good question, because I've since come to know so many people in the Foreign Service who had that that sort of in. And it's not necessarily that an in really gets you in, because you know we can't offer we we have internships, but it's not like if you know somebody who works in a law firm, they can get you a job at that law firm. Just because I know somebody, I couldn't get them an internship at this embassy. I mean, it just really doesn't right. work that way. But you have somebody who can sort of walk you through the process and help you understand the lifestyle, and I think that's a huge, huge advantage. So I, growing up, even though I you know I majored in economics and political science, I had traveled overseas. I uh, you know I read international news all the time. And I, I understood at a basic level that the U.S. government has embassies and those embassies are staffed by diplomats. And somebody has that job being a U.S. diplomat. But it never occurred to me that these are real people or that this is a career right. path that, that is open to you. Right. So really, the, the way I found out about it, I had a friend, maybe I think our senior year of college or maybe the year after, I said, hey, do you want to get lunch on Sunday? And he said, oh, I'd love to, but I can't. I'm taking the Foreign Service Officer Test, the FSOT, so let's do it another day. I said, what What is the FSOT, I've never heard of it. And he explained that this is the, the test, the first of the three steps to become a US diplomat. And I sort of filed that in the back of my mind and thought, oh, I I, I guess maybe that is something I could do one day. And then I uh, set it aside and, and a few years later when I was looking for work, I thought maybe I'll give this another shot. Uh, but there was one person that really helped me understand the process because aside from Knowing that he, that this one friend took the test, I didn't know anybody else who had ever worked at an embassy, or, or really people who worked for the federal government at all. But the State Department has a program that they call Diplomat in Residence. So it's maybe 20 or 30 relatively senior people in the State Department whose assignment for two or three or four years is to go be posted somewhere, typically at universities, and they cover regions. And mm-hmm. their job, they maybe do a little bit of public speaking and explaining foreign. Policy to a U.S. audience, but a big part of what they do is recruit people to take the the exam and then also help them mm. understand the process. So uh, it just so happened that the the gentleman who covered Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio happened to be based at the University of Michigan, which is where I went to school, and it was a 45 minute drive from where I was living at the time. So I went and I met with him twice, and he showed me some videos and helped explain the process. And it really was critical to me uh, passing the particularly the the final stage, because I already passed the first two stages by the time I spoke to him. But they do this in-person interview, and it's really more like a game than anything else. And I'll I'll just give you a quick example, is that they're looking, they measure you against 13 specific attributes. So it's cultural adaptability, leadership, uh, innovation, trustworthiness. Mm -hmm. You have to, for one of the parts of this interview, you have to give an anecdote about how you showed cultural adaptability. And they'll, mm-hmm. so they'll, they'll ask you, I see here that you uh, served on the, on this committee in at your college, tell me about a time that you showed cultural adaptability. And if you, you start telling your, your little anecdote, and if you achieve what they're looking for, they will cut you off mid-sentence. So you'll say, and then uh, I later went back and talked to that person again. I said, okay, stop, stop, stop. That's enough. We've heard enough. Let's. And if that happens. I knew because this this diplomat in residence told me that that's a good thing. That means that they've mm-hmm. heard enough to check the box. And if you were in a normal job interview and you started telling a story and they <laughs> cut you off with oh, a sentence, mortified. You'd be but, yeah. And it also works the opposite. So say you finish your story and say, "And that's how we solve that problem." And they say, "Okay, do you want to tell us a second story about oh, how you demonstrate yeah. cultural adaptability?" that means that you didn't answer the question properly. And if, in a normal job interview, if they said, interesting, tell me more, you would think, wow, they, they must really be impressed by me. But in fact, it's the opposite. They, they're trying to give you a second shot because you didn't, you didn't prove it the first time. And all this is to say that it's just a, a very unique process. So I would say that if anyone out there is considering a career in the Foreign Service, it uh, really is worthwhile to contact these diplomats and residents and find the one nearest to you, or you, I'm sure you can connect by email, but I'm always amazed that there are people out there who pass the test without having spoken to, to the diplomat in residence. And I should say that there are other um, sort of meetup groups, particularly in the Washington, D.C. area, but also other big cities where other people who are looking to pass the test will, will join up together and compare notes and practice mm-hmm. together. There's also online groups, which I, I didn't really know about until later on.
0: It's a a whole other world. I mean, how would you know about it? You know, I'm wondering if you could just talk a bit about the different posts you were at. I know you've been hopping around the world the past several years. So can you share a bit about where you've been and what you've been doing?
1: Yeah, sure. So I started at the State Department in 2012. I did about uh, 10 months in Washington. So that was part orientation. And then I did uh, about six months of learning Arabic. And then I With that Arabic, I went to Yemen, where I worked as the economic and commercial officer. So I was the one covering all economic issues and supporting U.S. businesses looking to invest and export to Yemen. So I did that for two years. Uh, During that time, I was evacuated twice because of security threats. And then I also got to spend about uh, six months working in Washington. So I got to understand uh, the Washington perspective, because that's a big part of the Foreign Service. So I, I went to work in our headquarters in Washington for about six months. And then I studied Spanish and did something totally different. I worked as a consular officer in Madrid. So that means that I was making uh, decisions, called adjudicating immigrant and non-immigrant visas for foreigners looking to travel to the United States. And because Madrid is such a cosmopolitan city, about two-thirds of our applicants were from Spain and about a third were from mm-hmm. every other country around the world. We had applicants from 161 countries uh, during the, the two years that I was there. After that, I moved to where I currently am. I'm in Jordan, and in Jordan, I work as again as an economic officer. So that's sort of the career trajectory that I'm heading towards is to focus on economic issues. And I've been here for three years. I mainly focus on energy issues, but also some financial issues. And I'm leaving here in three weeks, and I'm going to move to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, I'm going to be the assistant information officer. And that primarily means uh, dealing with the press, but also running our our pretty uh, well-developed social media accounts and our outreach to the Palestinian community. So we have about 300,000 Facebook followers. We're active on Instagram and Twitter and maybe even get get started on Snapchat. And I'm only actually going to do that for one year. And then after that, I'm gonna move to Tel Aviv where I'm going to work at what we call our embassy branch office, which is under the embassy in Jerusalem. And I'm going to, again, work on economic issues
0: so crazy you say this so casually like do you have any idea what you just said <laughs> first uh, of all how many languages you know, you know, do you you just said it so nonchalantly as if it's like this is what everyone does guess what it ain't but it's amazing well you know i surround myself
1: doing? now with people who for whom this is do is this. totally normal and maybe only living in five countries makes me sound like i've uh, you know, like so, a rookie yeah like a rookie so inexperienced in the world but also I, you know i you meet the foreign service tends to attract a lot of people who come from uh, diverse backgrounds so there's a lot of people I, I don't have data to back this up but it seems like there are a lot of people who are immigrants themselves or whose parents mm-hmm. are immigrants or who grew up overseas i think you see fewer cases of people like myself who are born in the united states whose parent i mean not, actually i'm sure it's by far the majority, but people who are uh, born in the U.S., whose parents are born in the U.S., who lived their Mm -hmm. whole lives in the United States, Mm -hmm. you you see a lot of people like that, but you also see um, people who come from these really unique backgrounds. And I think the State Department attracts a lot of people like that. So for me, having grown up in uh, Southeast Michigan and Metro Detroit my whole life, uh, it really Sometimes mm-hmm. feels like uh, I'm I'm one of the the least well traveled. But then I go back home to the, to Michigan, and it does feel like I live a very unique lifestyle that is uh, different from a lot of the people I grew up with in in Metro Detroit.
0: I'd say I would definitely say it's all. I have so many questions. There's so much I want to ask you, and I'll just start with asking. How does the process work when you're studying the language and then you get the assignment? How do you know where you're going to go? Is it stressful for you to not know where your assignment's going to be? What is that like?
1: Sorry, our assignment process is different for your first two assignments than it is for the rest of your career. So the first, two, the first assignment, you start out with an orientation class, and there were about 90 people in my class. And a week or two into it, they give you a list of 100 or so job openings. And you rank them high, medium, or low. And Mm -hmm. then the State Department, there's an office that does this and they uh, evaluate different criteria. And if you already know Chinese, maybe they'll factor the timing of whether or not you need to learn the language for the next 10 months or if if you have enough language to get there already. Anyway, they they compile all this together and then they assign you to a, a posting. For your second assignment, it's similar, but there's a bigger pool of people and a bigger pool of jobs. And again, you rank, this time you can at least rank order them, so it's one, two, three, four, five. And you sort of get to choose as long as all the criteria work out, as long as you have the language that they need or the timing to learn the language before they need you at your next assignment. As long as everything works out, then uh, the people at the most difficult posts get to sort of go first and then it, it goes down and down. I happened to be in Yemen, which was the most difficult place they would allow people to go on their first assignment. And there were three of us there who were uh, competing for these jobs. And I, I saw that Madrid was an opportunity. And so I, I went to my one friend, do you want to go to Madrid? And, and he said, no. And I asked my other friend, she said, no. I said, okay, great. Then I'm going to go to Madrid. So it wasn't really my choice, but it was my first, well, it was what I was hoping for. And then they chose mm-hmm. for me and sent me to Madrid. But every subsequent job is really like applying for any other job. You mm-hmm. write a resume, a cover letter. I'm so sorry, there's a list of job openings that, that comes out. And it's maybe 600 jobs in my sort of career field at my rank and i can bid on any one of those jobs uh, but it also if i have the language that they need or if i have enough time in my schedule to learn the language because they the state department will train you and typically in languages if you don't have the, the language ability yet for that assignment you, you have to reach out to the people who are hiring and it's a lot about references. So what makes this job, so I still have to do phone interviews and I still have to present myself in the best light and talk about my experiences. And it's really more similar than you would think to applying to any other job in, in the private sector. But what's different is that in the State Department, there's only about 8,000 foreign, what we call foreign service officer generalists. So that's the career field that I'm in. There's 8,000 of us, which is, is too many to ever know a good chunk of them personally, but it's small enough that you you tend to be at least one at most two or three degrees of separation away from whoever is going to make the hiring decision. So it's a lot about figuring out who knows who and saying, mm-hmm. can you reach out to my, on on my behalf to this person? I understand that you two worked together in Lima, Peru 5 years ago. So you, can you can you tell her what a great candidate I am for this job? And that really goes a long way. But it is very similar to to any other A job,
0: Yeah, networking, the job process. I'm curious to hear more about Yemen. You said that was your first assignment. And off the bat for an American and a Jewish person, seems a bit of a hostile environment. So I'm wondering how you felt about going there, how your family felt about you going there, and some of the biggest challenges when you were posted up.
1: It was a challenging environment to work in because Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was really very active at that time. If you remember, that's where the underwear bomber had trained. They sent mail bombs uh, to synagogues in Chicago that had come from al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and they really were a a big threat to the United States. And that's uh, the big reason why I wanted to go there, was because I I wanted to be in a place where I could feel like I'm making a difference in an issue that really matters. And not to... Disparage the issues, the important issues that my colleagues work on all around the world. But I really wanted to be in a place where, you know, the country and U.S. foreign policy is in the headlines and matters to to our most senior leaders in Washington. So it felt uh, rewarding to know that in some president was was following the issues that I was working on, and that is what enabled me or gave me the confidence to to get through the difficult time in working there. We have a tremendous uh, security support system, so I would never feel comfortable going to a place like that and uh, just being on my own. But we would always travel in armored vehicles, and we had armed guards with us. And you know, the places we would go outside of the embassy were always scoped out in advance. So, so in some sense, it, it felt fairly secure. But if, on the other hand, we knew that Al Qaeda was uh, targeting us, and would take advantage of any opportunity that they had to, to really come and get us. Uh, another threat emerged while I was there, which was the, the Houthi group, which took over Sana'a, which was, which was the cause of my – Sana'a is the capital. And uh, that was the cause of the second time that I was evacuated from Yemen. But I always tried to keep uh, an attitude, you know, two things in my mind that, that kept me going. One was that the, the work was important. So I, I sort of compare it to skydiving. You can be afraid of skydiving. But there's not, you don't need to do it. But I did feel like we needed to be doing the work we were doing in Yemen, because the only way to defeat terrorism is to create stable democratic institutions and economic growth and job opportunities and hope and trust in the system. And this was after the Arab Spring when they were going through a national dialogue process and a reconciliation process. And I wanted to be a part of that because that's that's the only way that you can uh, eliminate the terrorist threat to the United States is by create changing the conditions on the ground. So I really believed wholeheartedly in the mission. And the other thing that I kept in mind to, that I think kept me safe was to to be a little bit scared all the time. I think if you are if if you pretend like there's no risk, then you you become too cavalier, and that mm-hmm. puts you. In, and similarly, if you are terrified all the time, then you're not thinking straight and you're not making good decisions. So I always tried to think, is this safe? What are the risks that I'm taking on? What could go wrong? And if it does, how am I gonna get out of the situation? So people ask me all the time, oh, you lived in Yemen, were you scared? Yeah, I I was absolutely scared. Uh, But I think I was scared in a healthy, productive way that uh, was both important for my mental sanity, but also for my physical safety. I think it it helped keep me uh,
0: protected. To me and probably a lot of people, it sounds very brave and fearless. And obviously the attitude is, and everything you're saying make a lot of sense as to how you carried yourself there, How what motivated you. It was very meaningful for you. But why do you think that you're so brave? Like really, a lot of people would not have done that. Why do you think you thought, oh, I can just go and do this and it'll be okay no matter what?
1: I think I've always had, uh, I don't know. I think it goes back to having the sense of purpose that you know we all we all uh, meet our maker at some point and i wanted to be doing something that that really uh, makes a difference i'll also say that while it was somewhat brave to to go out to a difficult place like that i was not the one real at the highest risk a lot of that goes mm-hmm. to our security personnel servicemen and women who were really out there with ready to protect us A lot of it came down to our Yemeni staff. I mean, they're the ones who are really at highest risk Uh, because the United States is so unpopular. I I, I worked most closely with two Yemeni guys who were so dedicated to what we were doing because they they believed that the U.S. had the Yemeni people's best interests in mind. So when we would push for reforms or changes, these were changes that were going to help their countrymen. And they really believed in what they did. But they would go home and not and they, they didn't tell their families where they worked. Their closest friends had no idea that they worked at the U.S. Embassy. And so that, to me, is bravery. We lived in a compound that was so well-protected, but my Yemeni colleagues would go home every day and just be on their own. And unfortunately, a lot of them died. You know, I mentioned that we had been victims of attacks by Al-Qaeda. Um, the previous attacks, no, no American uh, diplomats or embassy personnel were killed, but unfortunately. Uh, several of our local staff lost their lives. And that's the risk that they take on. So I think they're, they're the brave ones keeping us safe. There was always the security oh. protocol: was that if, if something goes wrong, they sound the alarm. My job was to get to the, the safe place as quickly as possible, which is, you know, behind all the heavy doors and the walls and the bulletproof glass. But it was somebody else's job was to go and confront the threat. And so I think they're, they're the ones who really uh, uh, took on the, the risk.
0: Hmm. That's so crazy! I can't imagine. What is it like engaging with all different kinds of cultures? Are there? Do you have any big lessons or big things that you learned? Did you have culture shock? And I also want to follow up and ask, what is it like to not necessarily be settled? To know that you're going to lift up in another two years. How do you make friends? Do you even try to put down roots? What is that like? One of the
1: I, I like moving to different places. One of the things that has sort of surprised me about this job, which is probably a, a personal failing as much as anything else, is that it's really more challenging than I thought it would be to uh, to get deep into the culture of a place. Before I backpacking, so I spent five months living in Nepal as a volunteer and then traveling around South Asia and Southeast Asia and a little bit around the Middle East. And I really enjoyed the chance to, to spend time with as many people from the local culture as I could and and try to to dive into it. You know, I find working at embassies, my closest friends by far are the Americans that I work with at the embassy. And then I'm also friends with the local staff, so the the Yemenis or the Spaniards or the Jordanians that work with us at the U.S. Embassy. But I sort of had it in my head that when, when I first started, I wasn't going to be like everyone else, all the other diplomats, you know, in their own little communities. But I was really going to go out and only hang out with uh, local friends. And, you know, unfortunately, I never really achieved that. I think a big part of that is because people like to spend time with the people they know well. You know, I saw Spaniards in particular. I'd go out with, with some of my Spanish colleagues and, and their friends would be around. And I'd say, oh, how do you know uh, Maricela? And I said, we went to elementary school. And how do you know her? Middle mm-hmm. school elementary school Mm -hmm. and elementary school. Some some people would be friends from university, that was it. I found it harder than I expected to make friends within the local community. But the other nice thing is that because the Americans are so used to moving around, uh, uprooting themselves from their communities, there really is a great, uh, everyone, all the Americans are always so welcoming and, and so eager to make new friends and socialize together and also go on adventures, travel together, explore the country together, go to new restaurants. So that has been the biggest part of my community. So I, I, I wish that I had really spent more uh, time and energy trying to break out of that bubble a little bit, but uh, you know, I think it's, uh, thankfully, part of the reason why maybe I stay in that bubble is because uh, the, the, the Americans and, and local staff in that bubble are always so kind and generous and welcoming when you come to a new place.
0: And there's a lot of common ground. You're going through these experiences together. I mean, that's a huge way that people connect. You are not alone there in Jordan, Danny. You are with Courtney, your wife, and you recently had a baby. Mazel tov. Just curious to hear, how did you meet Courtney? And was she open to this kind of lifestyle? What was her background? Your lifestyle is very alternative compared to most people who don't (laughs) switch countries every couple of years.
1: So Courtney and I met, be, it was actually because of the second time I was evacuated from Yemen. I had worked with a woman from the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. So that's sort of like a sister agency to the State Department, but they, we focus on foreign policy writ large. And USAID looks at development projects that they can do to help countries achieve self-reliance through promoting democracy or women's rights, job creation, really bringing countries up the development ladder. So anyway, I worked with a woman in Yemen and I hadn't seen her for a while when we were back, both back in Washington. So we made plans to get together and uh, we got to the bar where we were meeting up and she said, oh, by the way, I hope you don't mind, but I invited a friend from work to join. And I said, okay, well, or I thought I kind of only wanted to hang out with you tonight and catch up with you, but whatever, it's too late now. And about five minutes <laughs> later, I saw Courtney walk into the bar and I thought, oh, who is this? And she Uh-oh. came and said, oh. down. Uh, the rest is history. I later found out actually much later that the friend had told Courtney, you should come and meet my friend, Danny. He's a nice guy. I think you'd hit it
0: off. I think you'd like to go out with him,
1: but it was no, I a didn't know any of setup. that up. It was a secret That's setup. Good. It was only That's
0: the best kind of way that. Yeah. You didn't know. That's perfect. Yeah. It was like, Oh, so, Courtney's coming.
1: So I don't really remember when we talked about, um, whether or not we would move overseas together. But first of all, she came into it knowing uh, that I was already a foreign service officer, knowing that I was already overseas and and that this was the lifestyle I was pursuing. So uh, it was no surprise to her, but she also knew a lot about what this life looked like because she worked in the sort of foreign affairs world. And she had also done a three week assignment in Egypt. She lived for six months in Thailand with USAID. And so she, wasn't coming into this with her eyes closed. She she knew sort of what the what the lifestyle was like.
0: Do you see this as something that's going to be your lifestyle f- until you retire? You know,
1: it's a good question. Uh, a lot. I think it's healthy to only take it one assignment at a time. So far, I re- I've really enjoyed it. I've been doing this for eight years now, and I think it always creates new challenges, uh, new opportunities one thing that i like about this job is that i think there's sort of this millennial trend of hopping from job to job and they say the Mm -hmm. average person you know before they're 30 does seven jobs what's nice about this Mm -hmm. career is that you can have that type of hopping around within the same career and you don't have to start over from scratch every time and you don't have to uh try to to break into a new field every time because it's all the path is sort of set for you to do this. So will I keep doing this until I retire? We have mandatory retirement at 65. Ooh. Or, you know, a lot of people, I think for a lot of people in the foreign service, the end goal is to become an ambassador. So people ask, are you going to go until you become mm-hmm. an ambassador? And the truth is, I, I really don't know. I think it's far too soon to say, I'm just going to take it one assignment at a time. But that being said, I, I do really enjoy it. And I do think that I have the ability to contribute and to make a difference in a way that I think is both significant to the American people. I think in the State Department, we provide a lot of a lot of bang for the buck. I'm able to really dive into an issue and interact with local decision makers and work with decision makers in Washington and the senior people at our embassies and really uh, shift a decision in maybe a different direction. And that's what I find the most rewarding is when I feel like all of my experience and the network that i've built and the contacts and my own insight and analysis are able to to drive a decision in a different direction than it would have gone otherwise and sometimes these can be um, you know even at, i'm at a fairly low level even so these can be pretty big decisions with you know potentially billions of dollars at stake or the types of political or economic choices that can really have a, a large impact on a society or even if you're when i was doing my consular tour in yemen sorry, in Spain, I was able to make decisions about whether or not somebody could come to the United States that would really affect the rest of their lives. And Mm -hmm. making these types uh, or being able to influence these types of events uh, really make me feel like I'm making a difference for the positive. And as long as that's the case, and I'm not too sick of living overseas and moving all the time, I, I can see myself doing this career for the long haul.
0: Definitely. And you believe in what you're doing and you see the impact of it. And not everyone can say that. And it's so true what you said about how, you know, this day and age, a lot of younger adults really are switching jobs every couple of years. And you, within the framework of something you already know you want to do, can kind of have that where it's dynamic. You're moving around. The day to day is going to look a bit differently. Obviously, the country and the culture will be different as well as the work, but it's kind of leading you on this path that you, want to be on. As someone who lives far away from family, I just want to know how is that for you? And there are often people who could have a great job opportunity not in their hometown and they're conflicted. Perhaps because of corona, this remote work will change how a lot of things look, but I'm just wondering what that's like for you.
1: It's not easy. Of course, I I miss my family, particularly at the holidays or at major events or when somebody is sick or in the hospital. I do feel really bad. Uh, being so distant but I also see it as a choice that I've made and in some ways it's selfish because I enjoy the life that I have and I, I get all the benefits of being a diplomat living overseas but in other ways it's really you know as a as a public servant I think the us needs people who are dedicated to to take these jobs and live overseas and I do feel that i'm I'm doing what is both in a sense selfish because I enjoy it, but also it's it's work that needs to be done. So I don't feel
0: mm-hmm. as
1: guilty of being overseas as maybe I did during that year that I was just traveling and, and strictly enjoying myself. Mm-hmm. I feel, I you know it's it's a sacrifice that I feel like I'm making in order mm-hmm. to to advance the foreign policy interests of the American people, and it comes at a cost and a personal cost and a cost to my family, but. Thankfully they're pretty understanding that this is what this is sort of the the life that I've pursued and, and means less family time, then that's just one of the sacrifices that we all have to make.
0: It's a very meaningful career path and it is important. So first of all, thank you. I wanna know looking back, is there something you would have done differently or was there ever a crossroads or a big decision and you still think today, hmm? I wonder if that happened or what if I chose this?
1: Yeah, career-wise, I definitely think that. So before I joined the State Department, I mentioned I applied for 200 jobs and I got two of them. The other job was working at a uh, urban planning nonprofit in Detroit called Data-Driven Detroit. And it was a really interesting place to work. I started off with an entry-level job. Uh, My first week, I went to an Excel spreadsheet and I changed all of the periods to commas and all of the commas to periods. And that's what I did for a week. I still think that's the reason I... I wear glasses when I use the computers because I was staring Uh at this Excel spreadsheet for 40 hours. But I did that job for two years, and I really got deeply involved in issues in the city of Detroit and in the wider region, but mainly with a focus on uh, the neighborhoods of Detroit and how to improve quality of life for the people that live there. And the the day that I got that job was also the day that I passed the final of the three stages of the state department exam. And I thought maybe I should turn down this job because I'm, I'm sure the, I still need to do my security clearance and my medical clearance and wait on the registry to be hired. And I, I thought, I don't want to, to start this job and then quit in six weeks when the state department thing comes through. However, it took an additional two years for all of those other steps to come through. There was a hiring, federal hiring freeze, the security clearance took longer than i expected so i ended up working in this, this nonprofit in detroit for two years and while i was there in the state i sort of put the state department job in the back of my mind and i wanted to get more and more involved in life in detroit and i sort of had a vision for what that would look like for myself um, you know buying a, a place and you know, maybe finding different ways to get involved in the detroit community and then all at once, I got one day I got an email saying, congratulations, you, we'd like to hire you and you're starting in five weeks, move to Washington. And all of a sudden those dreams uh, and plans that I had built for myself became really uprooted. And so I often think back, what would my life be like if I did live in Detroit? If instead of living 8,000 miles and seven time zones away from my family in Michigan, what if I lived a 20 minute drive? You know, I would have a completely different life and I'm sure it would have been a great life. And I, I still look back uh, a bit, Nostalgically, and I also see a lot of my friends and peers and coworkers who are uh, now eight years later doing amazing things uh, with their lives, either in Detroit or elsewhere. And, and I think, you know, that I could have had a great life like that too had I uh, chosen that path, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I look. I, I wouldn't say that I regret it at all because I, I love the path that I'm on, and, and frankly, I it's within my power to to get off this path if I if I didn't want to be on it. But mm-hmm. you know, I think we all. So someone when I was applying for the foreign service, one of the best pieces of advice I had was that make make the foreign service plan B. People would say, "Oh, if I'm, I want to be a foreign service officer, but if it doesn't work out, I'll try doing this or I'll try doing that. Maybe I'll mm-hmm. go to grad school. or Maybe I'll apply for this type of job." But the best advice I heard was that make the foreign service plan B. It's so uh, such a crapshoot whether or not you get hired, and then mm-hmm. you know whether or not. There's gonna be a hiring freeze. There's so many factors outside of your control. So you should live your life as you want. And if the State Department thing comes through, then great and pursue that. But don't hold off going to grad school. Don't hold off you know, that, that romantic relationship or pursuing your, your career outside of uh, government and let the State Department be your plan B. And so that helped me shift my mentality from saying, oh, when is this going to come? When am I going to get hired? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it? can't wait to saying, okay, Mm -hmm. if it comes, it comes. Mm -hmm. If not, I'll I'll live my life in in a different path.
0: I think it's really important what you said that you could have had either path and it would have been a, a great life no matter what. I think a lot of people put a lot of pressure on themselves that there's only one way to do this. And the fact of the matter is there are many different ways and you could be doing, anyone could be doing a lot of different things and still have... Meaningful, interesting lives. And sometimes you choose, and sometimes things are out of our control. But I think it's fascinating. And yeah, of course, it makes sense that you would think, oh, what if I was there? You know, what if this never happened? It, it's a crazy thing to think about. The last thing I really want to ask is advice you would give to people who don't know what to do with their lives because as you said you had different passions you were interested in international relations but you were applying to a lot of different jobs and this was something that you hadn't really thought about until you chatted with your friend this wasn't even on your radar and then this became your reality so what would you tell people who are trying to figure out their paths
1: i think you have to try a lot of things and see what works for you and throw a lot of things against the wall and see what sticks. And it helps if you have the right uh, mentality and mindset that you enjoy different things and that you are you can be satisfied uh, with a lot of different things that make you happy. You know, I found when I was in college, every time I took a class, I wanted to change my major or change my career path because I said, this is fascinating stuff. I want to spend the rest of my life doing this. And then I would take you know another class the next semester and think, no, this is my new Path. So having that right, uh, that attitude that keeps you excited, but you also have to try things. I think about it a lot like going out to the bar on a Saturday night. Many of the times that you go out, you know, it's not that fun. It's the same routine that you do every Saturday night. You just sort of chat with your friends, have a few drinks, and go home. But every once in a while, you'll get on a crazy adventure, and you'll find yourself on the back of a moped at 3 a.m., going to some secret taco stand or something. You know, you, you can get into these uh, fun adventures that really are memorable. And maybe that's one out of every three times that you that you go out. But if you don't push yourself, if, if you say, I'm not going to go out tonight because I'm just going to sit at the bar and, and have two beers with my friends and then go home, and I, I'd rather just stay home and watch Netflix. It's fine if you feel that way, but you're, also, you're going to miss out on on the chance that you have this type of adventure where you're on the back of the moped, So I, I try to take that attitude uh, to my professional life and my you know working life in general, which is that you miss out on the opportunities that you don't put yourself out there for. So you may, it may end up being a dud and it may be a bad decision, but it might be the best decision you ever made. And you really can't know in advance. But if you, if you predetermine what's uh, what's worth it and what's not, and what's going to be a great decision and what, and what you predict is, is not going to be a great decision, then you're limiting yourself and you, you're uh, putting yourself in, in too narrow a that.
0: I think that's great advice and I'm craving tacos right now just from it. We need to wrap up, but thank you so much for sharing. There's a lot more I wanna hear and learn about and I can't wait to see the continued successes and see you in Jerusalem and hear about the important work you're doing. So this, I feel like this just might be part one of a conversation.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. I would love that. And I think it's so great that you're putting these stories out into the world and, and people can be inspired by them. And I wish I had heard. I wish your podcast existed 10 years ago when I was uh, 23 and trying to figure out what I was going to do
0: in this world. Well, you ended up figuring it out. You didn't need the podcast. But thanks, you. I'm still Annie. figuring it out. <laughs> we're all fig- I think that's the moral of the story. No one actually has it figured out. You no. might seem like you do, but no one does. Right? That's the truth.
1: That's the truth.
0: Hi all. I hope you enjoyed the episode. There were a few things that really stuck out to me with my talk with Danny. First of all, the fact that the plan might not happen right away. For Danny, he waited two years before it worked out and he got an offer from the State Department. I think it just shows that sometimes you have to be patient. It might not happen right away. I also thought it was amazing to hear the kind of impact Danny is making. He's making sacrifices, but knows this is something that needs to happen and he believes in it. I think that kind of passion is something we are all looking for and we might not find it in a conventional career route. We should keep our minds open and be open to different kinds of opportunities and see where they take us. I also like that Danny said he didn't know if he would do this forever or until retirement. His attitude was to take it one post at a time. And I think that's a great attitude for all of us. And that's it, see you next time.